This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John with the testimony of John the Baptist and Jesus' call to his first disciples. Yes, sirree. And uh, we got out of last episode too quickly, Brent. Uh, I didn't even read all the notes that I had. I wanted to circle back because we talked last episode about the Logos, right? And we, I quoted a couple things um, out of Brian Gadawa's book, um, some notes about Heraclitus. Uh, I read a little excerpt out of my archaeological study Bible from Zondervan, which is out of print, but I, I read a little note there. And I forgot to read a whole second note that I have. Uh, and whenever I talk about this, people are often, for good reason, like, what are your sources for all this Logos talk? So I, I, I had all all these intentions of just reading everybody else instead of just like talking about it myself. And then I forgot one. So here we go. I'm going to go back. So you got to go back to last week's episode, everybody, in your mind. Go back to Logos. Here's a little note out of the same, the same study Bible, same archaeological study Bible, has this little side article as well. I really liked how they worded this and packaged this together. It says it's John 1, John's theology of the word... Logos is rooted in the Old Testament, but also addresses pressing philosophical concerns in the Greek world. The phrase, in the beginning was the word, obviously echoes Genesis 1, which records that God created simply by speaking. That is, God created by means of his word. There can be little doubt that this is the primary background to the use of Logos in John 1. God's word brought the universe into orderly existence. The Jewish Targums, who uh, echo this understanding, maybe we want to link, maybe you can link a Wikipedia article about what a Targum is. Brent, if you don't mind, that'll help everybody. Absolutely. The Jewish Targums echo this understanding of the divine word. They frequently employ the term memra, derived from the Aramaic word for speak, to describe God's creative activity, and this may have contributed to the language. We find in John 1, the word logos, however, also had a rich tradition in Greek thought. While logos can be a very general term, meaning simply word, account, explanation, or thing, the, philosoph- the philosopher Heraclitus used it in the sense of an ordering principle for the universe. Thus, the logos is a divine logic that gives order to the universe. Heraclitus appears to have associated it with fire and to have linked it with the reason within human with, with reason within human beings. This sense of Logos was most fully developed by the Stoics, who taught that the universe was permeated with the Logos that gave order and rationality to all things. In late Stoicism, this Logos could be equated with pneuma, or spirit, a kind of compound of fire and air permeated by reason. There was a Logos within each individual person and a Logos that pervaded the universe, By extension, the logos within human beings enabled them to move in harmony with the logos of the universe. Those who were governed by passions and emotions, however, were thought to have turned away from the universal logos and to have become bestial in their behavior. This concept provided the basis for the Stoic ethical system. What did John mean by describing Jesus as the logos? 
As noted above, the link to Genesis 1 is central. The Logos is the one by whom all things were made, that is, Christ. But there may be a secondary application of the term that would speak to the educated Greek reader. Christ in his person is the Logos, the truth, the guiding principle of the universe and of the soul of every person is not a mere abstraction of theoretical rationality, but a person. By this person, the Logos, the individual, may attain harmony with God and his creation. End quote. All right. Um, so I just wanted to share. I thought it was really well worded and said the things that I try to say only better. And you said, Brent, uh, as we were getting ready for the episode here, you said that you went back and actually listened to some of the Bible Project's material and found it to just be mind-blowing as usual. Uh, yeah, no, no surprise, really. Um, so I listened to uh, their podcast, um, as I am typically um, inclined to do, um, is listen to podcasts. And they they have this creation series of videos, um, and John 1 is part of that series, and that video is available. So I'll link that in the, in the show notes as well. But the episode that I listened to um, is about an hour long where they're kind of processing through all their thoughts that went into the creation of that video. So it's, it's a lot more expanded and, um, they just had so many super interesting ideas and thoughts. Um, they, they mentioned the, the Targum, um, in the episode. Um, so they, they talk a little more about that. Um, they mentioned the idea of John one being not only a, a reflection of the Genesis one story in that, in the beginning line and the sense that it is the beginning of the story of Jesus, but the structure of the, the first section of John one mirrors the structure of Genesis one. So that was super interesting conversation. And then they also brought up, um, the, or or at least they made me think of the idea of John being, um, multilingual as we looked at when we went through revelation about how he would say something and whatever he would say would simultaneously reference, uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek culture that he was talking to. And so I was just thinking like, surely he did that same kind of thing throughout his gospel as well. Like we've seen that a little bit already, but I'm, I'm just thinking like, as we go through this, that's probably something we should pay attention to is how John is using his language to speak to, multiple audiences. I would certainly think so. Well done, Bible Co- Bible Project. We are not surprised. Not in the least. They do great work. Yeah, I love it. I love all of it. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. Let's uh, dive in. Let's finish up John, the first chapter of John today. Brent, let's, uh, let's get through John 1. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Okay, so we we already end up having this um, collision here with the synoptic gospels, because the synoptic gospels and even Jesus himself make it very clear that John was who in a poetic sense, Brent? He was Elijah. Exactly. And here we are in John, and everybody says, well, if John was Elijah, then why does he say he's not Elijah? And Uh, In this particular gospel, this non-synoptic record, what you end up having here is a much larger conversation where uh, they are asking him, was it the Pharisees who who came to him, Brent? Let's see here. 
Does it say? They, Jerusalem said priests, priests and Levites. Priests and Levites, yeah. All right. So they come asking about this. They they want to know if he has this messianic identity, and he confesses freely that he's not the Christos. He's not the Mashiach. He's not Messiah. They say, are you Elijah? He says, no. Um, the next lines are going to talk about, are you the prophet? Are you this? Are you that? They're trying to identify, do you see yourself as a messianic figure? To which he's saying no. He is very clearly answering their question because, and and oftentimes what we love to do is we love, and, and for ease, sometimes we do this and it's not even all that, like, I wouldn't even critique it, but we will kind of lump all these ideas together into one concept of Messiah. But the concept of Messianic thought was not monolithic at all. There was all kinds of bouncing and intersecting ideas from, I mean, we talked in session three about two-part versus three-part eschatology, and and where does Elijah fall in that? And and is Elijah the same person as Messiah, or are they two different people? Uh, and what about the prophet? We'll we'll talk about the second Moses. What about what about all these different figures? And you can you can kind of put them all together and just kind of in the same box with the label Messiah on it. Or you can also pull in some theologies, in many different theologies, you can pull these distinct characters apart from each other and say that Elijah is actually different than Messiah. The second Moses is not necessarily that same idea. Like all these things can also stand on their own. And so these Sadducees, these essentially Sadducees, priests and Levites, who remember from last episode, don't even adhere to the teaching of the prophets, are coming to John trying to figure out where he stands and whether or not he means trouble. Who the heck do you think you are, is essentially what the priests and the Do you Do you see yourself as a messianic figure? To which John is very adamantly saying no to all the above. It's not that he would, he would disagree with Jesus's identification of him as Elijah elsewhere. It's that in the context of what he's being asked, the answer is very directly and cleanly, no, I am not the character you're asking me about. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Elijah bringing a new kingdom. I'm not I'm not the second Moses. I'm not the prophet. Now, if you put it in Jesus's worldview, is he is he Elijah the forerunner? Is he Eliyahu the 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 character maybe spoken of in Malachi? Okay, well that's something else. And the answer to that question is yes. But the answer that the priests are asking him are you this revolutionary messianic figure? John's answer is, no, I am not. But I happen to know the guy who is. All right, we can uh, give us the next question, Brent. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. All right, so the first one was, are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? Now, what are they? And it's the prophet. Are you the prophet? Not, are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? So which prophet are they speaking to? Uh, Brent, give us Deuteronomy 18. Give us a little, little section of the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Now, who's speaking here? This is Moses. This is Moses speaking in Deuteronomy. Okay, excellent. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. Okay, so as Moses prepares for his own death and that transition, he starts speaking of the future because the people have greatly relied on 
Moses as a character and as a leader. And what are they going to do when Moses dies? And so Moses tells them, well, God is going to raise up another another like me. God is going to raise up a, a, another Moses, a second Moses, the Jews said. Now, in a very practical sense, who was that? Joshua. Joshua, right? Okay, so that, that second Moses character was in a very practical sense, very historical sense. It was Joshua. And yet every every Jewish reader would kind of know, like deep down in their bones, was Joshua as impressive as Moses, Brent Billings? Uh, no. no. No, no. Nobody touches Moshe. And so they were waiting for this prophet that had been promised them. Like Joshua was the guy that took over, but God promised through Moses somebody like him. And so they were waiting for what many called the second Moses. Again, another name for, it could be a Messianic figure. It could be understood and talked about in a lot of different ways, but they were waiting for Elijah. They were waiting for a second Moses. If you would have asked some Jews, are all of these people the same person? Is Messiah? Is Elijah? Is the second Moses? Are all those the same? Some Jews would have said yes. Some Jews would have said no. So they're grilling John. Are you Messiah? I'm not. Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the second, the prophet, the prophet, the second Moses that Deuteronomy spoke of? I'm not. Go ahead, Brent. And I like the affirmation that comes immediately after this in Deuteronomy. Uh, The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So God's like, yep, it's coming. Like Moses isn't just, you know, making something up to, to like appease you for now. Like, right. This is, this is my plan. That's a great point. I love that. Okay. Back to John. Finally, they said, uh, this is the priests and Levites again. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness Make straight the way for the Lord. All right. And then John the Baptist kind of pulls on, leans on, and quotes that kind of that quintessential thematic verse for the the people of the Essenes. Now, do with that what you will. Call that a stretch. Call that a direct connection. Uh, I think it's one of those indications that who we're dealing with here is somebody highly, highly influenced by the Essenes. But go ahead and keep reading. Now, the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Thank you for noticing that difference, Brent Billings. Thank you for a point. It wasn't the priests and Levites. This is now a different group of people, radically different group of people. Now the Pharisees, the Perushim. Yeah. So like everyone is intrigued by John and is going to check out whatever is happening out in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. He's making nobody happy. Like you would think if he's making the priests upset, the Pharisees would be like, all right, we hear you. But no, the Pharisees don't like John. He's, he, he's, he's going against the grain of their understanding and teaching and practice and tradition. Now, the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Okay, now let me just riff on this for just a moment. So obviously, clearly speaking of Jesus, clearly John's saying, I'm not the guy you're looking for. I'm not Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not, but I know the one who is, and he's and he's here. And I'll tell you what, I couldn't even stoop down to untie his sandals. That's how full of glory and magnificence and bigness uh, this this character is. Now, I, I'm, I riffed in session three, and you don't have to agree with me. My teacher also suggested the same thing. I think John the Baptist may have functioned in kind of a very 
rogue, informal way as Jesus' rabbi. I know that John is only six months older. I know that it's his cousin. I know that that's not usual. But I don't think there was much about Jesus' life that was usual. I think Jesus' birth narrative, I think the uh, the questions that would have, have arisen about the legitimacy of his identity and his birth would have kept him out of traditional Jewish schooling. I think John the Baptist kind of takes him under his wing, kind of this family business, because here's my question. How does John know all about Jesus? How does he know all about? I'll tell you who this guy is. Well, wait a minute. How does he know? And why is Jesus in their midst, if not Jesus hanging out in the same vicinity and we don't know how much time goes on between these conversations. Did these conversations happen back to back? Did these conversations happen over the course of months or years? We don't know. It sure seems to me like John has a very intimate personal knowledge of who this Jesus is and and where he's going. So anyway, I digress. Go ahead. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. All right. So here's John the Baptist, and he's uh, giving—and apparently he had this this special kind of revelation, kind of Holy Spirit moment in in which God kind of told him and revealed to him who Jesus was, which— I do so much, I spend so much time railing against God goggles, Brent, that sometimes I forget to affirm what happens through uh, an intimate relationship with God, a personal pursuit of God and Jesus, what the Holy Spirit can reveal to us, and how revelation works in sense of just prayer and personal leading and the voice of God talking to us. And that, that kind of proves the fact that we can sometimes know things that God is able to show us or reveal to us. There's been, I mean, I, I don't even love to talk about it, Brent, because it makes me so nervous because it's not objective and it's very subjective. And I don't even know what to do with those kinds of traditions. And yeah, So I kind of usually stay away from talking about it. And yet there's a real, uh, we've all had experiences with that, I feel like on some level here or there. We feel different ways about those experiences, but there's a real legitimacy to that. And it shows that you don't have to be God to have um, God-given insight. You don't have to be God to have heard from God about something that he's shown you and revealed to you. So John tells this story and says, man, I was there. I got to tell you about the day that I baptized. This guy came and got baptized. I saw heaven open up. I saw a dove come down, and God very clearly impressed upon me the identity of this this Jesus. So anyway, just thought I would add some commentary to that as we pass by. Yeah, and I I think this is, I don't know, I feel like I've had moments like this where There's something that I've been told about, but I don't really understand it. And then I see it and it clicks immediately. And I'm like, oh, that, that's what I, 
knew about, but I didn't really know it. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Add a, add a little spiritual component to that and bingo, you've you've got what we're talking about. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully it's a relatable experience for listeners. But yeah, it is. I mean, it's like Sode. We've talked about Sode. Sure. It's the, it's the mystery of God. Like there is mystery to it. So absolutely, it's, it's really hard to, you know, to describe it in a, in a scientific sort of way. So yeah. Anyway, I love that. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. I'm going to interrupt you again here because interesting phrasing here uh, that Ray pointed out to me when we were in Israel, to all of us, wasn't just me personally, but Ray, Ray pointed out that this phrasing here would seem to imply when John it, it said there, give me verse, um, let's see here, give me verse... 36, one more time, Brent. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When he saw Jesus passing by, and the Greek phrase there would seem to imply, especially in the Hebraic mind, when he saw Jesus walking, and the reference would be the manner in which he was walking, when he saw how Jesus walked. Now, in the English, we kind of translate that as when he saw Jesus passing by, almost as if he was just sitting there one day, and he looked up, and he saw Jesus, and he was like, oh, hey, but the Jewish understanding here of what John is saying is that John was watching him walk. He was watching the way in which he lived out his faith. We're not just talking about the like the physical act of walking here. We're talking about the actual living, the way that he lived out Torah, interpreted Torah with his life, the way that he saw people and loved on people. And did, when he saw the way that Jesus walked, lived, when he saw the way he was walking in faith, that's what caused him to say, Look, the Lamb of God. I've always found that to be super compelling. There was something about the time that John spent with Jesus that convinced him that he was dealing with not just any old student. And obviously, it was his cousin. Obviously, he knew who Jesus—I get that. But but there was also deeply connected with the way that Jesus walked that caused John to exclaim in these kind of ways. So anyway, back at it. I mean, we think about like— uh, Jewish festivals and like they they were family. So how many times were they sitting around for a Passover and and just having discussions late into the night? And John is like, man, this guy's got some insight that I have never seen anywhere else. You know, absolutely. Uh, and and year after year of that, and and so he like John knows him so well at this point. Yeah. Um, but then to see him like take whatever he said in those conversations and then live it out. And he's like, yep, that's that's how it is. And astoundingly, somehow, the NET has no footnote on this phrase. So it's a good thing Ray said something about it because well, otherwise. There you go. <laughs> and it's probably, it's probably some conjecture there about what they would have heard in a Hebrew mind and exactly what the Greek word means. I'm, I'm, I don't think this is an open shut case there, but... But Ray was adamant that what's, what was being communicated here was that the way in which Jesus was walking, and by that, he thought those original hearers would have heard walking out of his faith. Yeah, absolutely. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw he, where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Man, and what a what a moment, right? So these disciples who were following John just switched rabbis. And that's like a huge deal. And yet, I feel like these two disciples were stinking listening. Like, 
Can you imagine if your rabbi is like, listen, I can't even tie, untie this guy's sandals. Like, I, this this is the guy. This is he's he's got to increase. I must decrease. Like, th- this is the guy. This is the one. This is the Lamb of God. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. And they were, I think these two disciples went, man. If I'm listening to my rabbi, I feel like I should go see if I can follow this guy. And they kind of go do. And Jesus is like, sure. And they go. And and my thought is, I don't know. What you, do you think John the Baptist was upset about that, Brent? No, not at all. <laughs> I can't imagine. I imagine him probably looking around at the rest of his disciples going, and why are you guys still here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I, I love that moment because that moment is, there, there's a weight to that. There's a significance to this moment where, if, listen, if you follow, we've talked about what it meant to follow a rabbi, to follow a teacher. And here's two students, here's two Talmudim of John the Baptist. And they they essentially just kind of go apply for a new program instructor and he accepts them and they peace out. And I I just love that. I think that's uh, just really telling. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called, why do I, why do I never <laughs> how do you say this again I, I always say cephas when it's in the transliterated cephas. english yep. <laughs> oh my gosh you are simon son of john you will be called cephas which when translated is peter which again john kind of varies from the synoptics and has peter's name change uh show up at a different part of the story and it's just the way that john wants to tell the story he's going to be piecing these pieces together and wants uh peter to be Simon and Peter to be Peter and Peter to be Cephas and Kepha. And he wants all those things right there at the front of the story as you read it. So uh, there you go. There, there's the uh, introduction to those two disciples. But we got some more coming, so let's keep on reading. This is going to be an interesting story right here, Brent. I think I might have you read. Let's just go ahead and read the whole rest of the chapter here and then go back and kind of work through this little weird part of John 1. I do like how John kind of plays with time a lot. Like yes. In the in our, our last episode, you know, he's talking about like people who who did receive him, like past tense, yep, um, and believed in his name, like he gave the right, like you know, he's just he's all over the place, like there's just always folding in new things that you need to understand about Jesus. Absolutely, and that's a great way to word that too. I, I like that. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, "Follow me." Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So I think maybe I'll actually stop you right here as you're passing by. (laughs) Of course. course. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Notice how it plays with what John, are you this? No. Are you that? No. Are you that? No. But I know the one who is. And now later in the same chapter, We've found that person and that person and that person. So now we do know, we know it wasn't John, and now we know that it, it, it is Jesus. And and that phrasing kind of pulls all those images and those ideas together here in the words of Philip. But okay, back at it. Sorry. So here's here's the classic joke. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
Jesus said, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right. So we have this really weird story here, right? Like kind of the quintessential God goggles story. Like here, you know, you got Nathaniel and and Jesus walks up and says, well, here's a dude who's completely innocent and righteous and awesome. And Nathaniel's go, how in the heck do you know me? And Jesus apparently says, ah, I peered through my God goggles and I saw you sitting at the base of the fig tree. And <laughs> I even, and how and you didn't think anybody was watching you, but I was watching you through my God goggles. And Nathaniel freaks out. And it's, it's just kind of like this weird interaction. And yet there's all kinds of context here that I feel like is unbelievably healthy or, or, or helpful probably healthy too. And so give us now when when Nathaniel walks up, Jesus quotes a piece of scripture at him. It's from Psalm 32. So go ahead and read us this chunk of scripture from Psalm uh 32, Brent. I think we're going to do you have the whole psalm up because I think we're going to read the whole psalm and just kind of hear this whole discussion happening in Psalm 32. Of David, a masculine uh whatever that means. We don't know, I guess. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. Okay, so this psalm is really an interesting psalm. It's kind of this this song that is all about, it starts with this declaration that if somebody were, if somebody's without deceit, they're blessed. Blessed is the one uh, who doesn't have any sin counted against him. Blessed is the one in, in whose in whose self and whose heart there is no deceit. Um, which is this kind of like this obvious, like yeah, if you if you're an honest person, if you're authentic, if there's no deceit in you, that's going to be a blessed state to be in. And the psalm goes on to to kind of describe this angst and this spiritual struggle and. You know, I, I tried to keep quiet. My 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 bones wasted away. This this sense of coming to grips, to of being honest, of trusting in God's grace, rejoicing if you can be counted among the righteous. It's an interesting psalm. And so Nathaniel walks up, and Jesus quotes the opening lines of the psalm, to which Nathaniel says, well, "Well, how do you know me?" And then this weird line about the fig tree. But I don't believe that Jesus is talking about a gog goggle encounter with a fig tree. Jesus is quoting here what is kind of common nomenclature, uh, this figure of speech in the Jewish world that referred to um, rabbinical leadership and teaching. So they have this understanding. Um, give me Proverbs 27, verse 18, 
Brent. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master will be honored. All right, let's take this line by line. The one who guards a fig tree, is that, did I say that right? Yep. Will eat its fruit. So there's this idea of somebody who cultivates, somebody who keeps, somebody who guards, somebody who, like if you have a fig tree, I think we talked about fig trees before in the podcast, Brent. If you have a fig tree on your property, what a blessed man you are because you have like a candy store growing on like figs. That's the most sugary substance you can find naturally in the ancient world, in that part of the world. So, man, what a, what a, so you cultivate that because if you cultivate, if you keep, if you guard, a fig tree, you will eat its fruit. So that's the one side of the parallelism. And that is the symbolic parallel to what was the last line? What's the second idea? Whoever protects their master will be honored. And whoever protects or whoever serves, all these words can be translated different ways. Whoever serves his master will be honored. Is that what I said? Uh, yes. Okay. Whoever serves, so whoever guards a fig tree will eat its fruit. Whoever protects his master will be honored. And and so what's interesting is the word for master, the, the root word there is rav, and it's going to be the same word that ends up becoming the root word for, for what, is, what word does that sound like? Rav, 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 rav. What, what word does that sound like, Brent? Rabbi? Rabbi. Okay, so it's going okay. to be a word that becomes rabbi later. So, so rav, so anybody who serves, who protects the master or serves the master will be honored. And so in Jewish thought, one of the common phrases that got used was, if you serve a rabbi, if you if you protect a rabbi, if you if you kind of find yourself sitting at the feet of a rabbi, going wherever a rabbi goes, well, you're going to eat sweet things. You're going to you're going to get sweet teachings and and nuggets of wisdom. You are you're going to be honored. You're going to be rewarded, just like the person who guards a fig tree. And so, a very very common phrase in the first century rabbinical world was this idea of sitting under a fig tree, and it was an idiom for sitting under a rabbi. Like some people might even say, uh, if they were to listen to that Bible project teaching, oh, it was like sitting underneath a fig tree. I got to eat, I got to eat those sweet, uh, those sweet teachings. I got to, I spent time guarding and cultivating my spiritual life, and I got to eat sweet spiritual fruit. Thank you, Bible project, for that. Some people might even say that about the Baymont podcast, but I digress. <laughs> like this is this is what it means to sit at the feet of a rabbi. And so my teacher, my rabbi Ray, uh, he taught us in Capernaum one day that he believes what Jesus was saying here is, I, I saw you studying with your teacher. And I know what your teacher was teaching on today. And I don't think that takes God goggles. I think that takes somebody who knows the rabbinical world really, really well. And somebody who knows their Bible really, really well. And somebody who knows who the other rabbis are that are teaching out in the courtyards really, really well. And I think Jesus is looking at Nathaniel saying, I saw you. He walks up and he says, Psalm 32, blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit. How in the world do you know me? Well, I saw you sitting under your teacher, and I know what you're wrestling with. You're wrestling with Psalm 32. Go ahead and give us the last part of that, that passage one more time, because Nathaniel responds in a really interesting way. Because it's either God goggles, right? It's either God goggles, because Nathan, what's, what's Nathaniel's response? Brent, just give us Nathaniel's response. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That seems like a a declaration that's full of a little bit of gravitas, don't you think, Brent? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's not just like, oh, well, that's kind of clever. Like, whatever Jesus just said. So either it's God goggles, because Nathaniel knew that there is no way anybody saw him sitting under the fig tree, which I just reject as a, as a possibility. Or Nathaniel is saying, 
you know what my rabbi was teaching on today and you know what I'm wrestling with, which, which some would say, oh, that, that requires God. In order for him to know what he's wrestling with, that requires God goggles. Eh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, whatever. You can all disagree with me on that one. But I think Jesus is saying, I know what your rabbi was teaching on and I know what you're wrestling with. And Nathaniel goes, holy smokes, that is exactly what I was wrestling with. Now go ahead and give us the rest of that story. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Which is a weird thing for him to say kind of in response to all that. Like, you're like, uh, what? Like, why? Because he's obviously clearly referencing what story, Brent? Uh, the Jacob wrestling with God. Yeah, the Jacob's ladder. It's actually the dream where he has a dream of the ladder and the angels are going up and down, uh, uh, descending and ascending, and the order is switched. And there's some fun commentary about that. But clearly referencing the story of Jacob, which is a really weird reference to make right here. And it's almost, it almost seems like it's an afterthought because Jesus says, man, you think that's cool. Like, you ain't seen nothing yet. And then it's almost like I picture him almost starting to turn away. And then he turns back and he says, and he makes this weird cryptic reference to Jacob like a remez. But what's interesting is if Nathaniel was wrestling with Psalm 32, there was a rabbinic conversation happening in the first century about Psalm 32. Psalm 32 uh, is this conversation about blessed is the one in whom, in whom there is no deceit. Now, it's clear that we could say, this makes sense. Tell me if I'm wrong, Brent, but I, I feel like this makes sense. If somebody has no deceit in them, they're blessed. That's a blessed state if you are free of deceit. Does that make sense? I think so. Okay, now the rabbis posited a second question. Can we also say the inverse is true? Can we also say if somebody is blessed, there's no deceit in them? What do you think the answer is to that, Brent? Hmm, I think so. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Maybe think some more. What do you think? Yeah. I don't, Could it, yeah maybe. It, do we do we know of people that are blessed and maybe struggle with authenticity? Uh, authenticity? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, in fact, if we were to like go to the Bible like a good Jew and say it's in the text, could we think of somebody who was blessed and yet was full of deceit? <laughs> uh, well, I guess if you insist, we can we can think about Jacob. Oh my goodness gracious! And so what is it? So 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 now let's replay the story. Jesus, Nathaniel comes up. Jesus says to Nathaniel, blessed are, you know, here's a here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel says, how in the world do you know me? Jesus says, well, I saw you studying your rabbi, and I know what your rabbi was teaching, and I know what you're wrestling with. And I, I wonder to myself, this is, now this is speculation. This is conjecture on Marty's part. I wonder if Nathaniel was wrestling with his own deceit, his own authenticity. Or, or maybe just the, maybe not even his own, maybe just the conundrum of like, well, the problem is, Rabbi, is I know lots of people in the world who are blessed and they're, they seem to be full of deceit. Whatever Nathaniel was wrestling with, Jesus says, by the way, the answer to your conundrum is Jacob. And boom, like the whole, the whole, the whole story just opens up and blows open. And now we don't have all these weird cryptic messages about, fig trees and Jacob's ladder that none of it's tied together. It's just like this weird, mystical, cryptic conversation full of God goggles. Now we have a conversation that makes all kinds of rabbinical sense that would thoroughly impress somebody who is a student underneath a rabbi. And what I love about John's story is here I have these these students that are studying under teachers. It's kind of a different tale than the synoptics. 
that that have a bunch of fishermen. And some of these names, by the way, are the people who are called as they were fishermen in the synoptics. Though those, so those stories overlap. Those are those are the same stories and the same people. And yet, as John tells it, here's these apostle characters that they're not just dumb fishermen. They're also people that uh, are committed to the Bible, to the text. They're committed to learning from rabbis and and studious and studying. And they recognize Jesus because of what Jesus is doing with the text. And uh, I just really like that. So there you go, Brent. We made it. John chapter one. Anything else you want to add to that? Well, so there is a footnote in the NAT on fig tree, and they don't quite go as far, um, which I, I really like. When you when you when you do what we did, like it just unlocks things so much more. So I don't know, but they're not they're not quite willing to go as far. But if you're looking for a source on the idea of rabbis using um, at least the location of a fig tree for teaching and studying. Um, apparently Ecclesiastes Rabbah speaks to that. So, um, there, there's, there's, the, there's your reference. There's your source for people who are looking for sources. I love that. And that's great. And, and you are going to wrestle there with like, uh, is that speaking in a, in like a literal sense is Ecclesiastes Rabbah kind of like, is, is it offering more of a allegorical, Anyway, everybody can wrestle with that, but that's the that's the conversation. Is it that teaching literally happened under fig trees, or is that Midrash trying to say like, oh, hey, think about this connection next time you're sitting underneath a rabbi? Yummy, 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 spiritual figs. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that'll do it for uh, John 1. We're, we're um, I don't know, 121st of the way through the book of John. <laughs> that'll do. Uh, verse by verse, we're getting there. So uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty on Twitter, you can find him at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BamaOnDiscipleship.com. Uh, check out those, uh, those links in the show notes. Um, get some Bible Project stuff in you as well. Like, let's, let's, I mean, if you want to go deep on John, let's go deep on John. Like, like get it going. So I like that. Thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.